comic fam. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is the Bags and Boards Show episode number 17. I'm actually sitting here remotely with my friend, longtime friend, Bueller, from the amazing YouTube channel, Comics with Bueller. How you doing? I'm doing great, Tom. Thank you so much for having me back on the Comic-Con 101 show. We've known each other for a long time. It's my pleasure to be back once again on the Bags and Boards podcast. We are going to be touching on some touchy subjects. We're talking about controversial stuff. We're actually going to be talking about censorship. We're going to be talking about, I'm going to straight up say it, nudity. We're going to be talking about that on the show today. We found out from Todd McFarlane even more comic books that he's not going to sign. We're going to be jumping into that here pretty soon as well. But before we move on forward, I want to chat with you, Bueller, about something you do every single week that I utilize, and it helps me on my hunt, and I watch this video before I go out to my comic book stores. Well, Tom, you're talking about our weekly preview video that we put out every Wednesday for the new comic books. We cover all the books that are coming out for new comic book day for every Wednesday, every Marvel book, every DC book, image, you name it. We got it on that video. If you're ever wondering what a cover is going to look like, that's the video you want to watch. And I'll tell you this, it's the number one most watched preview video on YouTube. And that's because of our great community that watch it week after week. Bueller does great content for the community every single week. I'm going to put his YouTube link in the description below. Go give him a subscribe. Let's jump into the first topic of the show. Bueller, you were actually instructed by one of the McFarlands. I was, and this is kind of a great story. And actually one I just shared with you not too long ago. So Miss McFarland, Todd's wife, it was actually a school teacher for me in Clackamas High School between the years of 1991 and 1993. She was a science teacher there. That was my high school. She taught me science. I did not do very well in science class. But we found out one really cool thing. And want to know what that is, Tom? What was that? Her husband was Todd McFarland. Oh, my goodness. We were over the moon for Todd McFarland. We were all big fans. And you know what? We were on her on a daily basis asking her, could Todd please come to the school and say hello to his fans? All right. I have to know, at what point did you realize that this was the wife of your favorite comic book artist? I realized because a friend of mine figured it out. I don't know how he did it because her actual mating name was on her placard. But we saw that, we recognized it, and all of a sudden, the door was wide open for us to meet Todd McFarlane. Interesting. So you had requested him come into the school. What happened? He did, and that was awesome. And let me tell you something about Todd McFarlane. This is back in the day, and I don't think you're going to remember this, but we had mullets. They were looking all stylish, and Todd was rocking the mullet from the very first day I saw him. He came to our school. At that time, there wasn't a lot of people my age, I think I was around 14 years old, that were really in the comics. So he gave us private lessons on how to draw Spider-Man. There was like four or five of us in the audience. Wow, what a cool thing. So you were one of just a few people who even cared at that time, and you knew then that you were meeting someone important. At what time of his life, let me... Paint a picture for me here. What was he about to release at that point? Well, Image was right around the corner. He had actually mentioned that at the school. He mentioned that there was a character that he's always wanted to do. Marvel probably wouldn't be the one to put it out. And of course, very soon after, we see Image Comics come, and then we have Spawn. And I'm pretty sure that's the character he was talking about. For 14-year-old kids, seeing their idol. For me, he was an idol. He was my Michael Jordan. Not some actor, not some athlete 
This guy was my Michael Jordan, and I got to see him when I was very young. And that impression that he made on me has lasted a lifetime. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think this is a great example of the responsibility that, that isn't necessarily on these creators, but when they choose to take on it, then it could really impact their fan base and youth in general. At a 14-year-old age, very impressionable. He noticed that right away. And he took the time to recognize that with us. He didn't have to come to the school. He didn't have to do this for us. He knew there probably wasn't going to be that many people. It was probably the smallest crowd he's ever performed for, to be honest with you. And I got to take advantage of that. Now, an example was he pulls me on stage. I asked him a question. How do you draw Spider-Man? He tells me to draw two lines on a piece of paper. So I do. And he literally draws Spider-Man from those two lines. He fits all the limbs in the lines and stuff like that. And that's how Spider-Man was back then. He was all gangly and limbs were going everywhere. It was fantastic. It shaped my life because I cemented myself for the joy of comics at that moment right there. And it stayed with me ever since. It's for that reason I wanted to bring this story to the community's attention because there is a lot of fathers and mothers in the community that have children that take them to conventions. And I think this is something, a story that I've heard time and time again, where these creators happen to connect with a member of the family and they don't realize that it's going to happen, but it does. And even McFarlane has this story that he has shared publicly about Stan Lee of him doing the very similar things, going out of his comfort zone, chatting with the content creator and getting feedback that he didn't have to give. And when Stan did that for McFarlane, it put him on a path to work in comics. And I see this happening all the time in this community. And it's just something I, I like to highlight and, and showcase to the community as much as possible. As a reminder, when you go to conventions, these types of opportunities are there if you, you put yourselves in a position to have them happen. It's a great position to be in. I've actually run into him a couple other times since then. I ran into him about 10 years later. I mentioned the scenario where we were at school and he met me there. He actually referred to me as Wanda's kids. That's his name of his wife. I thought that was great. And then just recently, and this is an unfortunate event, but uh, I had a passing of a friend of mine. He actually sent me a video message sending his condolences about that had happened. And I thought that was really great. And he didn't have to do that. That's awesome. Now, I had heard about this story a couple months ago and I had asked if you had the yearbook still. Were you able to find that by chance? You got to show me that picture of Mrs. McFarlane. Is it in there? Yep, I got it right here for you, Tom. Check this out right there by my finger. I don't know if you can see it, but there you go. Miss McFarlane and all her black and white glory. There right you go. There. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. We're actually going to touch on some more Todd McFarlane topics here later on on the show. But before we do that, let's chat about the sponsor of the Bags and Boards podcast. That's Key Collector Comics, the best comic book app for collecting in the world. I agree, Tom. I use it on a daily basis. I've actually talked to Nick. You've talked to Nick. He's the creator of the Key Collector comic book app, and he provided a service for comic collectors. And there's not a day that goes by that I literally don't look at that thing. And every time <laughs> I walk into a comic book shop, it's in my hand. There's countless things on the Key Collector app that you can use all the time. You know what? If you use Codetom 101, you get a free week subscription. And let's chat about one of my favorite categories on the app. That is the Keys of the Week category. The Keys of the Week is a great category because I focus a lot on new comics. 
and Keys of the Week is a new comics category for the app. I look at it all the time because I'm always putting together videos for the books that are coming out. And I actually do a top 10 new release video. And guess what I'm looking at when I'm putting together that video? I'm looking at the Key Collector app to see what it has to say. I use that information with my information and I put together that video and it's one of my most popular. Keys of the Week gets updated every single week and use that code to enhance your comic book collecting. And let's jump into the next subject of the show. We are talking about censorship. We're talking about comic books that are controversial because of some changes in the YouTube community that are coming. We have various types of threats to monetization and channels that make content that may or may not be child-friendly. And that has spawned this idea of this podcast, like the theme of this podcast, and why I have Bueller, a friend who also has a YouTube channel, on the mic today. So the first subject that I thought would be fun to discuss is nudity in comic books, something more adult. What did you say? I, I'm pretty happy to talk about this, and I'm, I'm, I'm honored <laughs> that when nudity came up, he immediately called me, and that's just fantastic. So let's talk about it. <laughs> All right, Bueller, let's jump into it. Nudity in comics. Well, according to Comic Vine, the definition of nudity as it pertains to, you know, when it's part of the comic book medium, is the absence of clothing usually employed in fiction for either erotic or comedic situations. Now, something that's really fun about this website is that they actually break down instances of nudity in comics, and there's a hard number that they've calculated, and this is for mainstream comic books, ones that you can get on the shelves and ones that are less independent and more mainstream. We have over 2,600 different occasions of nudity happening in comics and some of the occasions here are actually listed by title so some of the ones we're chatting about it's not necessarily full nudity but it's the absence of clothing so some of these are for artistic purposes and it's not actually like a full frontal or you're seeing something like genitalia or something like that but some of them are as in this case here. So Saga, which is an image comic book written by the brilliant Brian K. Vaughn and drawn by the very talented Fiona Staples, it says here has over 24 occasions of full nudity in the comic series so far. I'm not surprised by that at all. I mean, Saga is one of those books to where there is a lot of nudity and strange nudity. And uh, if you're into that type of thing, I think Saga might be the book for you. In a very artistic and creative way, I might add. And another one here is Why the Last Man. I, I went to a Vertigo title here with 17 occasions of nudity. Last but not least, I wanted to also mention this one, Hellboy the Wild Hunt and Darkness Falls, both having six different occasions of full nudity in the comic. Now, when we have comic books have nudity in them, it's for mature readers, obviously, and it's been happening since the start of comic books. However, sometimes it gets past editors, it gets past publishers, and that's when things start to go haywire in the community as far as the collector's community. There are stories that are so good that just need to be discussed because it's fascinating. And Bueller, we should probably start them off with Tony Stark in Avengers Illuminati issue number one. That's right. Tony Stark is nude in Avengers Illuminati number one. There is a great, big, huge fight scene between Tony Stark and the Scrolls, and Tony doesn't have the time to put on his armor. Not only is he nude, but they strategically take the shadows and placements of other characters so you don't see anything, but he is definitely nude. And at the end of the fight scene, 
He is standing on top of a mountain and he is more proud than he's ever been. And he's on full display. It's classic and is actually listed on a number of sites as one of the top 10 best nude fight scenes in comic books. Now, let's move on to one that's a little bit more scandalous. We're talking Green Arrow and Black Canary in Green Arrow, issue number 34. This is from 1990, Bueller. Like I said, they didn't hold anything back, and there is a big, huge splash page with multiple panels on the splash page, and many different scenes have nudity in them, not just minor nudity we're talking about full backside and there is a and i'm just gonna say it a nip slip in this book that's right it got past the editors and this is something that this book is known for and one that actually brought some attention to mainstream press when it happened now let's move on to one of the strangest depictions of sexual activity in comic books i have ever seen in bueller <laughs> You have never heard of this until I sent this uh, this picture of the book to you. No, I've never heard of this, and honestly, it made me cry because okay. it's just uh, it's one of those things. It's a doozy, comic fam. It's one that's known in the comic book community, but it's one that we don't like to talk about. But it happened. We're talking about World's Finest issue number two eighty nine. Batman and Superman. Oh, gosh, this is a tough one. It's a tough one. Batman and Superman. Okay, they're weeping. They're weeping and they're crying as they are watching a mating ritual between these leech tentacle species that live within the fortress of solitude. They're called the krill. And this tentacle species has to mate by going into each other. And it is the grossest looking thing. And Batman and, and Superman, they're crying because they know that they're going to perish after they experience the emotion and mate. They perish after the fact, and it brings them to tears. This is one of the strangest depictions of coitus in comics I've ever seen. Coitus in comics, I got to tell you, just look at the panels. I mean, like you said, it's nothing like you've seen before. And although the same mating ritual is done with humans, as far as what you described, <laughs> this is not very pleasant to look at. And like I said before, it brings me to tears, just like it did Batman and Superman. Okay, let's chat about the Electra recall. We're going to get into some recalled comics later on in the discussion, but I think the Electra one is a special one because it actually has a label of the nude edition on CGC labels, does it not? Yeah, it does. It's right on the CGC. It says nude edition on there. This comic is actually pretty widely available. There's a lot of copies of this book. The nudity happens on pages 17 and 18, and it features Electra, obviously. We're talking about the Marvel Knights, Electra from Volume 2, Issue Number 3. And if you look at page 17 and 18, you will see in the recalled editions a nude Electra. Now, they ended up reprinting this with the same cover, but they added underwear to her body. Now, it's estimated that there's a low 5,000 of these comic books that actually hit the stands, and a little over 400 of which have actually hit the CGC census. But there are a low 500 comic books that were done through like dynamic forces. Are you familiar with these variants, Bueller? I am a little bit. I actually have a few dynamic forces in my collection. I do not have this book, but I want to pick one up because it sounds interesting and honestly... Who wouldn't like to have Electra, a nude version of that book? Yeah, it's, one. it's a little different. And the Dynamic Forces were signed by Greg Horn, and they were released with the first batch. So likely that most, if not all, were all sent out with the nude panels. Now, let's move on to one of my favorite 
comic books to have nudity inside of it because of something that happened in 2010. It's funny. It's it, 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 in a way, in a way it's not okay, but just the, the quotes here are, they made me chuckle because we're talking about the specter. We're talking about the specter and unfortunately nudity crept its way into that book. And it's a, such a great story. And we've read about this. We talked about it before. And I got to tell you, I'm a parent. And this was actually kind of discovered by a child found this nudity. And I can't think of another time when this was brought up. We're talking about Spectre issue number nine from back in 1987. Now, I know this to be obviously from a classic run, but I own multiple copies of this, not because of the nude panel, but because this is a Mignola cover. He actually did a couple of these covers in this run. And being a Mignola enthusiast, I had a bunch of copies. But what I didn't know that is back in 2010, a Utah boy was purchased a stack of books that came from the Dollar Tree. And in this stack of books was this Spectre issue number nine. Yeah, a Utah mother bought these books for her son at a Dollar Tree of all places, gave them to her son. He went home, started flipping through these books. On the very first page of Spectre number nine, there it was, nudity in the comic book. The kid felt a little uncomfortable, but he did the right thing, and he went and told an adult right away, and I actually have a quote from what he said. That's right. Bleeding Cool reported on this back in 2010. What did this mother say? Well, the mother herself didn't feel comfortable at all. She actually said it really embarrassed me because I had given a 10-year-old boy this book. I seen the naked lady, and I got mad. <laughs> 10-year-old Sheldon Conley, loves, who loves comic books, but knew something was wrong when he opened The Spectre. He says, I just turned the page, and I seen the naked ladies, so I handed it to a grown-up and said, hey, look at this. <laughs> so fortunately, Sheldon was able to put this comic away and give it back to his mother and you know, can, can grow up without you know, The Spectre messing up his youth. He can save it for maybe later on in his life. But it's instances like this that we're trying to prevent, right? Not all comic books are for kids. And I think that's a big part of this conversation, isn't it? It is. And, you know, as a parent myself, and my kids are older now, but at that age when they were 10 or 11 or 9 years old, that's what we do. We're in protection mode. We're trying to protect our kids from stuff like this, nudity, or maybe stuff they're not prepared to see. This kid actually did the right thing. The mother kind of did the wrong thing. But you know what? It all worked out at the end, and we got a great story to talk about. Exactly, Bueller. And it's these types of instances that we're trying to avoid. But I thought that's a good example about how comic books and kids don't always go together. And this is a common misconception that since the early 70s, we've been trying to fight. It is. It's something that's now coming to light because of this COPPA thing. And you know what? It does have a lot of people scared, but I think there is a lot of fear out there. We're going to kind of get into that as we talk about this subject. But it does make you wonder because the characters that we talk about are considered to be kid-friendly, I guess you'd say. And what are comics? Comics might just be kid-friendly as well. Exactly, Bueller. And it's for those reasons why I felt it fitting to talk about this subject today. We have COPA or COPA, however you like to pronounce it. It's an acronym and it stands for Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Now, this is a law put in place to protect children and the type of information that is gathered by them. And why this pertains to us in the YouTube community right now is because YouTube has just been hit with a huge fine and have rolled out 
a bunch of different requirements now put onto YouTube content creators that across the board appears to be a threat to anyone who makes content that may be enjoyed by children. It is a hard subject to talk about because we're, we're constantly sitting here asking ourselves, is my content kids friendly? I, on the hand, would say it's not uh, made for kids. Is it friendly to kids? Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's made for kids. And that's where the gray area is right now when it comes to this COPPA thing. The gray area was where pretty much almost all people are kind of falling into, and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do next. So the concern here is this law. It actually was enacted back in 2000 in April, and this was at the start of internet becoming a very household thing. The law was put in place to protect individuals who are under the age of 13 of having businesses collect their information. Now, first things first, we're not lawyers, so there that needs to be said. But if you go through, you can watch a 45-minute press conference that has been aired over this last week, um, or you can take a look at the FTC complaint doc or the stipulated order that was submitted to YouTube for this whole rollout of the complaints that they had and that what resulted into the filing of a $170 million lawsuit. COPPA has made it so that if a channel is being monetized on YouTube, is making content for children, then those channels are at risk of not only being shut down, but being fined so heavily that they may exceed $40,000 per video. That's right. That is uh, the fine that they're looking at. Now, just so everyone knows, it's not an automatic fine. This is not something that you would just get a bill for and you have to pay. There is a process that our government has. You would actually go to court. You would have to have a lawyer and all that stuff. Like Tom said, we are not lawyers. So our advice is just our personal opinions. But this is something that is getting a lot of attention right now. And it does have us worried. Now, like I said before, I don't consider my content to be kids content. What about you, Tom? I don't either. And although it is on the side of kid friendly because we avoid the use of foul language and really diving into subjects that are you know, too controversial that would be potentially flagged or not marketing friendly, our analytics show that as little as 0.01% of our audience is of the age of 13. Yeah, it's very small. My algorithm shows the same thing. I look at my numbers. Everything is really above in their 20s. There are people my age. There are people your age who are collecting comics. And our content is focused on the collector. There's not a lot of 13-year-old kids or younger that are collecting comics. And the stuff that we talk about, that's what we focus on. We've had a handful of DMs come through, emails written to the show, comments on multiple videos asking us to address our feelings of these changes coming to YouTube in as little as two weeks. I mean, by the time you're watching this video, it's going to be less than that. And at this point, we don't know what's going to happen. And the kind of like title of this video is like, is the channel ending? Could it potentially be the end of other comic channels that you like? Is that a hyperbole? In my opinion, I don't think it's what's going to happen, but it's not hyperbole. These are real things that could happen because what would actually signify the death of a channel that is community-driven is the lack of community. And it's not just demonetization that we're fearing. It is the multiple layers of restrictions that become in place if a channel is looked at as being as content that's being made for kids, even if it's not 
on the surface like maybe a comic book collecting channel goes. If that is the case, it's not just demonetization. We lose comment sections, we lose notifications, we lose access to being put into playlists. It's the death of the community. So a community channel that loses a community, in a way, yes, it could be the death of many channels that we hold dear. I agree, you said it exactly right. It literally is the death of the community, not the channel, the channel is there, but the community won't be able to find the channel. And the interaction that we have with our audience on a daily basis is gone. And to be totally honest, if that was gone, would I be driven to make the videos that I make? Would you be driven to make the videos you make? Probably not, because I met you because of this channel. You've met people because of your channel. I've made great relationships with people, and I don't want that at the end. Same here. And one thing that I found interesting is that when I went through the complaint document that the FTC filed, they actually had a handful, over 10 different sightings that they were claiming were channels that were marketing to children. And these are very large channels. Like we're talking giant YouTube channels. We are very, very small in this community here. But compared to like Hasbro, which was listed on this document, the big thing here is that they were self-declarating that they were making content for children. They would say that these are kids unboxings. They would say that these videos are made for kids. And that's actually part of the FTC recommendation is making a declaration that your content isn't for children because the requirement that YouTube place to be 13 years of age or older has all been thrown out the window after going on record and providing proof that they've been collecting information for individuals of all ages for quite some time. I do not think it's right that if I make a piece of content that is decent and being able to be watched by everybody, I don't think that's the content that should be fined. And literally that's kind of what they're doing right here. That's mysterious, that's strange to me. I would look at content that's being made that's not decent and then the kids watch that. I would think that that's the stuff that would be flagged. Right now, it's on the other end of the stick. And it's like literally if you make decent content that revolves around characters that we talk about, there's a possibility that we fall in that category. We're going to have to wait and see, but you mentioned something that I thought important, which is that you're going to start to have to structure your content around the potential that it could be maybe mistaken as kid-centric. And what I mean by that is, all right, well, you know, I wanted to make a video that may inform parents on different kids' comics that they may be into. I mean, I have Itty Bitty Hellboy on my main studio set in every single video that I recommend to every person who watches our channel. But now, those videos may actually cause or pose a problem and could be the destruction of a channel. It takes one video that could hit the FTC's radar that could cause a fine that would make it just something that we wouldn't want to even risk. So why do it in the first place? Absolutely. You know, the, the future is definitely in question, but you know what? Uh, I like to think positive and honestly, I think we're going to be okay. And I'm going to keep my fingers crossed and nothing's going to stop. I think we're both going to keep making our videos until they tell us not to. And hopefully that day doesn't come. Comic fam, we want to hear your thoughts on this because this is a very real thing that's happening in the next month and it's going to pose a threat to a lot of channels and we're going to wait and see and keep you updated all along the way. But supporting our channel has never been more important and you can do that by liking, by commenting, just by engaging. It keeps the channel alive. Those little things really go a long way and we need your support now more than ever. 
I'm really looking forward to reading some of the comments that you guys are going to leave because this is a great subject and really it's about censorship and there's a lot of censorship that might be coming our way so we have to be aware now we're talking about that we have a very special guest joining us on the channel Tom you got a great one what do you have? We're talking about Brian Polito. He's a regular guest on this podcast, I'm proud to say. And Brian, aside from being, you know, the owner of Coffin Comics, creator of Lady Death and Evil Ernie, he has a career making mature comics, horror comics. And I wanted to chat with him about his experience with censorship and mature comic book creating. He's had a lot of success in the last 25 years. Excited to hear what he has to say. Comic Tom, how you doing? Dude, I'm doing so good, man. We're talking about a sensitive subject on today's show, and I thought there's no better person to have <laughs> than the master of mature comics. Um, I wanted to read you something, Brian. This is uh, 1998, the preview tour <laughs> of Supernaturals. That was fun. Great, great time. So much fun to do. So yeah, in your intro, you said something that got me thinking this week, and I thought it just was fitting on this topic of censorship. We make comics for people who don't normally read comics. That's always part of our game. The comic industry is a pond. We're out to cause a ripple and turn the comic industry into an ocean. So <laughs> you had been in the game for what, five years at that time? That's right. Yeah, okay. I was like, I was young and filled with piss and vinegar and out to shake it up. And you know what? I think we did. <laughs> you did. Well, at that time, you had won numerous awards. And would you not be offered a job at Marvel like soon after this? It's true. Uh, it is a little known arcane topic, but during that time when companies like Event and uh, Liefeld Studio, etc., under the tutelage of that particular leader for Marvel, I was actually offered and entertained the possibility of being the publisher of Marvel Comics. So I was actually wow. wined and dined. This is true. I was actually wined and dined. I was brought out to uh, Marvel. I was set up. And I think we vaguely, both sides explored the possibility, but I knew, I knew I wasn't a fit. It's not, uh, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm a fan, but I, I wouldn't work in that corporate environment that well. And I let them know that preemptively. I thought, uh, I'm not going to name names, but there are people behind the scenes really advocating that I should publish for them. And there are people who are actually total players to this day, but um, I knew that I would feel trapped. And I wasn't a fit for them. They didn't, they didn't know it yet, but I knew I wouldn't be a fit. Constricting. Let's explore yes. that if you don't mind. Um, sure. Because I imagine there are certain things that you can get away with in, when, when making comics and things you can't. And as it pertains to censorship, I'm curious, what's been your experience in this industry? We have a peculiar industry because we all make a thing called comic books. And it's a strange name for what we do because frequently there isn't anything funny about them. And I'm not speaking just for myself, I'm saying even superheroic fiction, et cetera. I think things like the graphic novel, it's a shame that just globally we hadn't picked up on using that word. So I think when people think of the word comic and book, it conjures up imagery of material for children. And I think this totally sticks to this day. The general public who is who are not as involved as we are, whether it be as like fans or professionals, they really think the default mechanism is that comic books are for children. Even the superheroic fiction that dominates cinema right now, I mean, that could be enjoyed by everybody, and, and I enjoy it as much as the next guy, but I think it calls to the notion of mass market and for children. So that being the baseline, anything that tends to deviate from that seems to get a reaction. So in my particular case, I mean, as recently as 10 days ago, we produced a book called Hell Witch the Forsaken, and we were at pre-press with a printing partner of ours. 
and they came along to a certain page, page 22. And it was a, um, what I would call a carefully gloved sexual depiction. And I don't think it was X-rated or hardcore. However, the printer looked at it and said, look, we can't print this unless you alter it. And that was because one of their employees objected to the work. These guys have been our printing partner for a while. And, you know, they were happy to produce all the stuff that we do that has a lot of violence in it and cursing, but it was that depiction of uh, sexual activity that got them. So it is interesting. And now here's the challenge in all this, the way I view free market capitalism, I declined to alter the material and chose to take my business elsewhere. And I didn't really vilify them because strangely, I don't like to be censored, but by the same token, I completely understand their right to not want to print that material if their one employee in a company of 250 would object. We live in a weird culture where maybe they would get sued for otherwise producing this piece of material that some people consider objective. We actually, we recovered, we are printing somewhere else and it is a challenge though. So like on the one hand, we're proud, like we're doing something that got banned to this day and we have a history of doing that. I mean, Tom, in the nineties, we were doing a trading card set that portrayed uh, Lucifer, the fictional character that represents the devil. And we had printers that wouldn't touch it just because of that particular depiction. So we're talking about upending a multi, literally a multi-million dollar non-sport trading card project to another printer because of, because of a singular depiction of Lucifer. Wow. I can't imagine the amount of stress that goes into those types of business conversations when you're, you're ready to take a product line to the community, especially this recent one. We're talking about this recent Kickstarter. We were just talking about this like a week ago. Yeah, we're here in November. We're talking like mid-November. Wow. Yeah, it just occurred. So this, is, it this is, is literally happening right now still in major publishing companies. Well, it is. I mean, it's a challenge. Again, um, you know, we have our particular view, which is part of the freedom of being who we are. Coffin Comics is we're going to produce our content and we can't bow Sure. And by the way, I would say, I would assert that this phenomenon is acute in, here in the United States. We could do violence and cursing all day, but depictions of sexuality get challenging here domestically, but we could go to printing partners in Canada and actually in Asia, totally normal. And it's less sensitive for people. Oh, it's wow. just so simply it's less sensitive. Specifically here in the States, there's that's just been, a little bit more. That's only, that's been my experience. So okay. that's just this particular view. I can't speak to other people's, but that that's been ours. And for those who don't know, you've been producing mature comic books for over 25 years. And yes, one of the leading independent publishers of comic books since the early nineties. So if you're experiencing it, then I'm, I'm sure this smaller press has experienced it as well. I would imagine so. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in fact, when we, you know, we're kind of promoting that we got banned and we're kind of, for a moment, we're all happy about it. And then we realize, okay, this is okay. Back to one. Was there we were, a moment? Was there even a moment in any of these times where you thought, oh, well, we'll just uh, take that page to Photoshop and, and blur this just a little bit. No, not, not yeah, one can't, moment. Can't do it, man. Yeah, can't because uh, it's interesting because, you know, it'd be much easier to do that. We could have even like the page has three panels on it, maybe make one panel bigger and stuff. But uh, yeah, I guess I would be a sellout for what I do if I did it. So, and you know, it was neat. I was actually on the phone with my representative and they said, you know, we're doing, we're taking a look at the material and we had found something that we consider objectionable on page 22. And if you would just blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I won't name a name, but I'll just say, Johnny, I'm going to have to ask you to uh, stop speaking right now. And if what you're saying is you are recommending that I change my material to suit your needs, I can't do that. So I understand that we'll just have to agree to disagree on that. And 
we're going to move on. So before I was able to really edify that, I have to talk to our president, uh, Francisco Polito, I would just say, okay, look, you know what we're getting into by doing this because now we're back to one. We were almost at, we were literally going to the press. So we right. actually had a, we agreed company-wide and back to one. Okay, let's go find a printing partner and then make sure they don't object to this particular piece, which I would assert would be nothing crazier than you would see on the FX channel. Nothing that crazy. It's, right. uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the question of cursing and sexuality and mature reader content comic books, you know, I really look at the landscape and I'm just looking at how people pose on Instagram. I'm looking at cable content and it's nothing that we do. You don't see there, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. it's yeah. Just... And Lady Death isn't X-rated. It's, it's, it's tastefully done and, and has been for, well, for decades. Well, the fascinating thing, thank you for that time. And I think the fascinating thing about Lady Death is somehow somewhere along the line, people decided it was mature. And I actually never thought we were all that mature, but given that we were having that uh, label anyway, we were like, that's where we're going. All sure. right. So more cursing, more sex, more violence. Let's have it. Honestly. Sure. And then knowing again, the landscape, I watched Game of Thrones and I'm like, what, what didn't happen on Game of Thrones? You know, incest, sex, violence, beheading, you know, rape. It's crazy. So uh, I don't even know that we go that far, but given the pop cultural landscape, but what I would say to you, you said, is there a moment where you're kind of thinking, maybe make the change? I think once... We accepted our answer and we're moving on to the next printer. Somewhere in there, I totally intellectually realized, you know, you just made it harder on yourself, Polito. But this has always been the answer. The answer is always no. I love it. Well, do you think that in this uh, type of environment with, with censorship in general, that it would be difficult to cause these ripples, as you described back in 1998, like the goal of getting new individuals into comic books. You know, that's always our goal to this day. And I, I mean, we could see it now empirically through crowdfunding. We can see when we attract people who have never crowdfunded a comic book before. So it's still always the goal. Uh, so uh, I do think that we, in the, in the domain of comic book entertainment, we're competing with everything that's happening. So our type of entertainment competes with everyone's, whatever they're doing in their day, other forms of entertainment. I think sometimes people get a little short-sighted thinking that comic book companies compete with each other. I mean, certainly they do for market share, but our competition is for people's attention, whether that is for the other types of entertainment they consume or just the stuff that's in their life every day, the ups and the downs, the changes. So that the premise of going out there and looking for the ripple, going to cause the ripple, it's it's kind of what we wake up and go after every day. It, But it's sort of like the carrot that's on the stick. It's always a little further out. I'll close with this, Brian. Back in the early 90s, you caused a ripple with Lady Death and in introducing this sword-wielding badass who fights evil in hell and earth. And yes. when you started taking Lady Death back to press a little bit more recently, right? In the last five years, is that correct? February 4th will be our fifth anniversary of launching a new Lady Death story. All of those stories from the 90s, retcon now. This new Lady Death line of comic books over those last five years, fresh stories, fresh take. Now for the first time on Indiegogo available for everyone to jump into, is it not? Yeah. Yes, sir. Absolutely. In fact, yeah, it's the 10 chapters 
of Lady Death. And we usually have them in what's called a square bound, perfect bound format of at least 48 pages, all the way up to 64. But yeah, in the last five years, we've had 10 chapters of Lady Death. And right now they're all available on Indiegogo under Lady Death, the collection. I thought this would just be a great time to bring the Indiegogo to the community because we've had you on a few times on the show. And I want to have all of the individuals who are interested in jumping on one of the challenges in getting into comics sometimes is people don't know where to start. Yeah. And this is an easy place to start. I'm personally going with the hardcover. I'm going to get the one through three trade. I have the one through three, but I don't have them in a hardcover bound. So I'm going to pick that perk up and I recommend the community do so as well. We're going to put the link in the bio um, and introduce Lady Deaths to the combo community who haven't, Thank you. who haven't met her yet. And her badass. You need to meet her. You don't need to, but I cordially invite you to meet her. Oh, you, I'll, I'll say you, you need to. You in- I'll, I'll say <laughs> you need to. All right. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> Brian, until next time. I've been Brian Polito, geek responsibly, and comic Tom, assemble. <laughs> <laughs> assemble. I love it. Brian, you're awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. We'll see you again soon. All right. Let's talk about Sir Kate's this week. This guy caused a ruckus. We're, we're, we're filming this during Thanksgiving week, and I hope everyone had a really good holiday. Donnie Cates got into it with a handful of his Twitter followers, some who wanted to just voice their opinions on pirated comic books. Comic books that I didn't pay for, but they were able to find online because some people post them on the internet and you can find them. Now, the definition of pirate, pirated comic books, it's pretty clear cut. You know, if you download the comic as a PDF, you know, it's stealing. You got to pay for these things. There's comiXology. There's always that as an option. However, the ways in which you can consume comics are so different. You know, they're all over the place. You can do, you know, we do breakdown videos and we show pages as we talk about them and, and provide context. I mean, you have Comic Storian who does literal page by page breakdowns and you see almost the whole book. So the extent of which how you can consume comic books, there's a gamut. But on one end, which is the illegal end, it's pirated comics, and it's like just the straight, strict download. And this is what Donnie Cates has to say about that. And this is in response to someone saying, I don't have access to the comic books, or I can't afford it. He says, sorry, if you don't have money, you don't get to just steal from artists and justify it. I want a lot of things I can't afford. I either save for it or I don't get it. You aren't going to make me feel bad for condoning people literally stealing from me and my friends. So I want to chat about this. I think that it's an important subject. It's right around Thanksgiving. And I want to hear your thoughts about it, Bueller. Well, first off, both you and I know Donnie. We both met him. We both talked to him before. I'm not surprised that Donnie kind of took exception to this and he went on Twitter to let his voice be heard. Now, I got to tell you, the comic book market is a very small market. And it's a type of market that can't afford to have piracy going on in it. It's just too small. Other markets, you can do it. Other markets like, say, DVDs or movies or television or music, it's such a big market, it can't afford a little bit of piracy. It's not the right thing to do, but the market will survive. Piracy in comic books can kill the market for comics. That's right. We're talking about some low print count comic books that if they don't hit a certain milestone, the, the stories get canceled. So even if a small 5, 10, 20,000 happen to read a comic book online illegally and not go to the shelf, even if 50% of them had, it may be the differential of whether a comic stays on the shelf. That is the difference. It really is. It's just a few hundred or a thousand 
sold copies makes a difference between the title going away. And there's some great titles that do go away because they don't have enough readers. We need to make sure that we are going to our comic shop, that we are buying our comics. This is the media that has lasted longer than CDs, than DVDs. And it's the easiest to pirate, but yet it's still a tradition on Wednesday to go get your comic books and you need to do it. That's why Donnie took exception to this and he doesn't want people pirating his books. Donnie did this during Thanksgiving week and I have a concern that this timing wasn't great and that this may actually hurt the cause. First off, what's your gut response to that? I thought the timing was right on. He did the right thing, man. This is exactly what this guy does. He's in the face. He is the face of comics for Marvel right now, and he's going to let it be known what he wants to say. It doesn't matter the timing, in my opinion, and I think it would be great as this conversation is the conversation that people are having on Thanksgiving at the dinner table. That's a dream come true. Although I agree with you, Bueller, I think the timing is fine. Many in the community did not agree with it, and they thought it was poor timing. And I don't know. I want to hear from the community what you think about this in the comment section below, because I think it's important to bring up these conversations and to, to have these topics discussed fully, because the more people know, the more they're going to do the right thing. However, I want it to be effective. I want people to actually do what they're supposed to do. I want there to be more comics made. I want people to read comics. That's the big thing. And you said something here that was important, Bueller. You said that there is like a joy to this community that's kept it alive. We're talking about a printed form one that survived the digital age. It doesn't even make sense that these things can be purchased at stores still, but it does because there is a joy to comic collecting that only the collectors and members of their LCS and this community hit the subscribe button. They get this benefit from actually having these comics in hand. And I think that if anything, when we're talking about pirated comic books and whether or not you know, it's okay or not okay, or whether if you have money and you can't afford it, and it's kind of like, you know, do you steal the bread to feed your family type of conversation? Like, you can get caught up in in those semantics all day long. Bottom line, people are going to pirate comics. They're going to do it. It's going to happen. But I think the bigger conversation is communicating the value of actually engaging in the community and spending money and going into shops and buying your comics and having them in hand and the joy that you just described Bueller putting that to the forefront will make it so that our publishers and those pirate numbers mean nothing to these creators because the potential of getting people into this community is so much grander than these numbers that these websites stack because someone wants to be caught up on the latest issue of Venom and they didn't hit their LCS in time. There's a passion to comic books that's different than a lot of other collecting there is a passion to holding your books and reading your books type thing i have been emotionally connected to a book i have read i have never been emotionally connected to a cd or a dvd before and those are the most pirated forms of media today it's a different area and it's so nice to see that people do get passionate about this it's important to people that's why it gets bring up and that's why we need to talk about it i love it You know what else I really enjoy to talk about, Bueller, is viewer comments. And that's why we always encourage our community to comment down below because you never know who's going to be on the mic. We may source comments from any videos. And Bueller, you'll be on the show again in the future. So make sure to comment down in today's video for anything to Bueller too because we'll be sourcing comments from this video eventually as well. But let's take a look at a comment from last week's video. This is from Opus Garza. He says, 
I always find it funny that every time Tom brings up the first appearance of Wolverine, the controversy, Ryan transforms into a sleepy time Ryan. His eyes get heavy. His speech slows down a little. And you hear a lot more of his half-word outbursts, LOL. More Wolverine content, Tom. Keep it coming. Opus knows what he's talking about. You can never have enough content about Wolverine. The conversation about his first appearance will go on forever. It's been going on forever, and it's not going to stop anytime soon. The fact that Ryan gets so upset about it, <laughs> and he looks like he just got off the bus, and it just looks horrible. It is funny. I know exactly what he's talking about. I love bringing it up to him, Bueller. It's the funniest thing. Whenever I tell him, you know, we got some more like real first appearances to discuss, it's because there's so much pressure, Bueller. You know, we're going through, we want to be super accurate in the comic books that we discuss. People pay a lot of money for these things. And there's polarizing subjects here, you know, where the communities get split and, you know, we're here just delivering information we think is interesting, but the pressure is real and it could be a little exhausting because we spend a lot of time going through pages of comics to confirm these appearances. You know, what comic is it in this run? Let's go through the whole run and figure it out. And it gets tiring, man, but we put in the work for the comic book community. Let's take a look at this uh, next comment. Bueller, you spotted this one and wanted to discuss it. Sure. So the next comment we have is from Mr. Fries9983. He says, question, Chris Claremont is coming to my LCS for free comic book day and is signing one book for free for everyone. Any suggestions on a minor affordable key that will benefit from his signature? Ooh, I really enjoyed that question. Now, the first thing I want to know, Bueller, is what comic book would you suggest? And then I also want to know why you picked this question. Well, I got to say the book I'm going to pick on this one is going to be Wolverine number one by Chris Claremont. It's one of my favorite books in my collection. And not only that, it's signed also by Chris Claremont. And you know what? This is an affordable book. I mean, this goes for under $100 and it's a classic one. It's got a great cover. Tom, have you read this one before? Of course, I've read it, man. It's a four-issue miniseries. Frank Miller bringing the heat. I mean, it's a classic run. Everybody needs it in their collection and needs to read it. And you know what? If you get that Chris Claremont signature, it's going to be needing that Miller signature next. So maybe a good one to grab. Yeah, Tom, this one is a classic. And I got to tell you, the reason I picked it is because this is the book I got signed at that Comic-Con that we went to. It's the one that where we hosted the panel for Chris Claremont. Oh, he geez. signed this for me, and we're going to talk about it at the end of the show. Yeah, Bueller convinced me to talk about one of the most embarrassing moments that I've had when doing the Comic Tom show. We hosted a panel with Chris Claremont, did the interview on stage in front of 70-plus people and made a fool out of ourselves. But we're going to save it for the after show. You know, once the camera shut off, the mics keep going on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. I just want to also mention, if he's doing a free signature, which is unusual, isn't it? I mean, for the last, like, four times I've seen Chris, he's charged for signatures. We did his panel, and I had to pay $10 for him to sign this book. <laughs> he charged you? <laughs> yeah, he charged me 10 bucks <laughs> okay. after we did his panel. The following Emerald City that we did, I actually had him sign something for me, and I had him sign my triple cover of X-Men 136. And what's fun is that I had asked him, I had to pay like an extra 10 bucks, but he did a word bubble. This wasn't in the first draft, which is true. And you know what? I would recommend that if you are getting a free signature already and you want to get something that is a little bit more unique. I mean, Chris Claremont signatures are out there. You can pretty much buy any comic book with a Chris Claremont signature. He's been doing it for freaking decades. He wrote so much X-Men. 
you may find yourself happier with something more unique and personalized, kind of like the one that I got here. So let's move on to the next comment. This is from Nicole Tembungi4. Says, ads are really part of the comic book. It fills the remaining pages of the book. So this is in reference to key appearances in comics because of the advertisements. I'm, I'm curious to know, Bueller, what are your thoughts on key appearances because of advertisements placed in non-key books? So you're telling me that the advertisement that features the character should be considered possibly a first appearance? Or a key appearance of sorts? I don't think it is. I think ads are just what they are. They're just ads. Even though they're in the book, I don't consider that as a first appearance or a key. I know that there are collectors out there that look for those, but honestly, I don't think the value of those books will mirror the value of the real first appearance books that we're talking about. Like say the first appearance of yet Wolverine. Sorry, Ryan, we're talking about it again, but you know what? That's going to hold its value. The advertisement for Wolverine's first appearance isn't going to hold the value that the number one does. I can see your point there. And you know what? I would largely agree with that. But then this past week, something really interesting happened. I'm going on eBay. I'm looking over past listings because I have a handful of things saved that I'm trying to track. And we had something hit the market. It came and went quick. It sold for a staggering amount. And I'm talking about Batman almost got him. So yeah, I actually heard about this on your show. It's the Batman Almost Got Him. It's that mini comic with the cassette. Apparently, this predates the first appearance of Harley Quinn. That's right. Coming out that same year, at least that's what the folklore is. This is a real first appearance. It wasn't sold at comic shops. This was sold at like a like a Fred Meyer or a Target type of store. And yes, it came with a cassette tape because it was like a read-along comic book. And it was miniature, but it showcases the comic adaptation of the first appearance of Harley Quinn in Batman Adventures, the series. It's been creeping up in value over the years. We saw this start to spike this past year when more collectors learned about it, but we just saw a recent 9.8 exceed $2,000. That is more than a Batman Adventures 12. It is more, but honestly, Tom, I look at something like that and... It really appeals to like the hardcore collector type thing to where the other Batman Adventures book, that's going to appeal to a lot broader audience. So if you're not like the hardcore fan that just has to have everything, I don't think it sparks the interest that the regular comics have. Yeah, it's really dependent of that collector. And I just find it interesting to to see the trends and how some collectors feel different over others. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's uh, these prices are, are seeing records across the board, aren't they not? They are. It's it's surprising how much they go for. But man, people love Harley Quinn. Thanks to Cultra Geek PR, you won the DHP special, the first appearance of Sin City from last week's podcast. We also have another winner. We have Ruben Guzman. He is the winner of the Undiscovered Country exclusive cover that's only available in the mystery mail call brought to you by none other than Comic Tom 101. Congratulations, my friend. You can add it to your collection. That's right. Our mystery mail call, the link is in the bio to join the community. We are currently taking enrollment for December. We send out a box of comic books to your door every single month. And in every single box that everyone gets, there is a Comic Tom exclusive. And this month's exclusive is courtesy of Scout Comics. It's a homage to Sun Mariner issue number five, the first appearance of Tiger Shark. We have Metal Shark Bro Bueller. Can you please just enlighten the community? on what Metal Shark Bro 
is about. So first off, I love Scout Comics, but uh, Metal Shark is about, it's the uh, a tale as old as time. The shark eats a Satan worshiper and the shark, <laughs> it's hard to explain, but the shark then becomes somewhat human, but all the shark wants to do is become a shark. And uh, that's what the book's about, right? Yeah, it's Metal Shark, bro. If you like stoner comedy, if you like like metal and you like sharks, you're going to enjoy this Comic Tom exclusive. And we also had Nick from Key Collector break some information on the top 10. He surprised me, but he had word that, I guess, Cartoon Network is looking at this property. No guarantees yet. Wasn't worthy of a key alert. You know, nothing says solidified, but I thought that this was just a really cool comic book. Didn't know there was any news on it until recently. So you may want to secure your copy for that reason. But if not, the story alone is worth getting your copy. It sounds good. I mean, come on. It's, you have to have an original imagination to come up with that. And that's exactly what this book is. We need to talk about Todd McFarlane again. There are more comic books that he has gone on record that he said he refuses to sign. He's just not going to do it, Bueller. Tom, I think he watched one of your videos, and I think that's why he made this video on his Facebook. He saw you talking about this, and that's why he made this video. That's my theory. Well, basically, this is what's going on. The CGC saw our video that the guru and I made about the Todd McFarlane CGC private signing. They liked it so much, they reached out. They actually want to have a greater show up on the show at some point again we've actually had nelson join our show before and and enlighten the community on the inner workings of cgc in the past but they reached out they really liked the video and then they reposted it and they reposted on their facebook and their instagram it was really cool but then something even cooler happened todd mcfarlane went on facebook and did a live video talking about the subject just like the next day. So Bueller, I think you're right. I think he saw the video, whether it was with CGC's help or not, but he took out comic books on camera and said, hey, let's just talk about comics that I'm not going to sign at this next signing. And I'm going to surprise the community. This is kind of about, about comics that Todd won't sign again, but it's also not in the video he showed a bunch of books he showed a bunch of books that he would sign like the spawn books the spawn 300 the 301 the record breaker and some of the other books as well his spider-man books he's pretty much focused on the characters he created or if he had something to do with the book himself but the ones that were really interesting were the ones that he wouldn't sign and the ones that are in his collection and that's what we're going to talk about that's right. Todd had examples of books that he wouldn't sign. He said if he didn't have anything to do with the book and that the book didn't have a character that he created, well, he's not going to sign it. He's going to refuse it. But then he took out parts of his personal collection. And that's what this this part of the podcast is about, <laughs> is we have straight up shots of Todd McFarlane's grails. And we're going to go through them. And I also reached out to the guru and had him price them because we have close up of the CGC labels. So let's jump into it. The first book that he pulls out is the first appearance of Spider-Man. It's awesome. Amazing Fantasy number 15. This is an 8.0 restored. There is some work done on this book. We have some color touches. We have pieces added. The cover is trimmed. We also have some white off-white pages, which isn't bad. The staples were cleaned. How much is this thing worth, Tom? All right. We have a, you know, again, these are conservative estimates. You know, the 
the guru made sure to mention that some of these books are actually down a little bit, but he said he wouldn't be surprised for this book to hit between 30 and 35 thousand dollars in this condition it's a lot of restoration on this book but i was so stoked because he didn't just show these books like like this there was a close-up shot so we can actually read the numbers and actually see what problems are on this comic book because i'm like i'm curious i want to know what the grails are that todd mcfarlane owns and what their value is it's fascinating to me let's chat about the next book that he won't sign it's a kirby classic it is. It's Fantastic Four, number one, 7.0, also restored. This book came out the same year Tom McFarlane was born. I thought that was pretty cool. Obviously, he didn't have anything to do with it, and then that's why he's not going to sign this book. But this book has white pages and also a little bit of color touch, but really that's it, and it's a beautiful book. That's right, and I reached out to the guru. He said this is between an eight and $10,000 book in this market. It's a good one to be holding on to. I'm curious if these books, Bueller, were maybe bought together because we're seeing so much restoration happen. Apparently, he is more interested in the appeal and how the book looks from afar than whether or not the pages themselves are all authentic. Not to mention Todd is a collector of many things. He was really big in the baseball. He was famous for buying the home run baseball world breaker for like over a million dollars. So I'm not surprised that he has these in his collection. The next one that he showcased on his Facebook, I have to imagine he had to visit his bank vault or he must have a vault in house because this isn't one of those $30,000 books or one of the small $10,000 books like FF1 is, right? No, he breaks out the grail of all grails. He breaks out an action number one. Action Comics won the first appearance of Superman 7.0. The first superhero restored, but holy smokes. Talk about restoration, huh? Yeah, there is some restoration on this book, you know, but I don't blame him one bit. I mean, look at this book. It's Action Comics number one. It's the main book. It's the grail of grails. A little bit of color touch up, a little bit of pieces added. The seals were cleaned. The staples replaced. Edges trimmed. You know what? I would do the same thing, but more than likely, I would never have this book. But if anyone's watching, they got an extra one, feel free to send it my way. Yeah, there you go, Bueller. You never know. Maybe someone will be very generous. But you know what? <laughs> I reached out to the guru and read him the label, like the list of restored things that were on the book. Do you know what he said? No, I don't know what he said. He said, what an abomination. <laughs> <laughs> but, then he's, but then I laughed and I'm like, all right, but for real though, what do you expect this to hit the market? And he said, oh, that's an easy $250,000 for sure. So there you go, Todd. We just give you an approximate estimate value of your three major grails. I think it's awesome that he hit the internet here. He's serving the collector's community here. And by going on the video to share some of his personal collection and, you know, just provide a little bit more background on his reasoning and what he wants to sign and not sign. I think it's just more engagement with his community. And that right there are some of the biggest moves in the comic book community that actually grow it. You know what I mean? I do. And honestly, I got to tell you, it was so great to see part of his collection. And I want like the comic book community, the people watching this video, share with us what's your grail in your collection. I know what mine is. I'd love to hear what yours are. Yeah. What's your grail right now, Bueller? Mine's the Hulk 181, the first appearance of Wolverine. <laughs> there you go. You heard it from Bueller. Okay. Now let's uh, move on to the next subject here. We got... This is like one of my favorite subjects. I've been waiting to get to this one for quite some time. And we have some fun ones, some that I didn't even know. But we have some comic books to discuss. We're talking about 
recalled comic books. These are comic books that were so controversial for various reasons that the publisher said, no, stop them, pulp them, get rid of them, destroy them. Let's get into it. Absolutely. The first one we have is right off the bat. It's Spider-Man Reign, number one. Now you're thinking to yourself, Spider-Man recalled comics, what could that be? Well, this comic could have actually been in one of our other categories. This was recalled because of nudity in this comic book. There is an old-aged Peter Parker, and he is fully nude, sitting on a bench, and you can see, I'm going to say it, you can see Spidey's genitalia right there on full display. Yeah, Peter showing his Peter. And you know what? The publishers <laughs> were not happy about this. It was missed by editors, and they immediately went to reprint it, adding a shadow and trying to cover it up. But here's the thing. This is a comic book run. It's a four-issue miniseries, I believe. And it's fantastic. It is yeah. a story that I recommend for a lot of people because, for one, it's a little bit more mature because it's dark. We have kind of a harsh future where Peter accidentally kills Mary Jane post-coitus because his, as they say in the comics, his radioactive fluids caused her cancer. Now, although that may seem a little ridiculous... And it's actually kind of revered as just a fantastic Spider-Man story. But it is overshadowed by some of these controversial themes and specifically that panel that editor missed. Yeah, and honestly, this book is widely available. Even though it was a recalled book, there was many of this book out there to be bought. In, and it's actually only selling for around $6. That's not a lot to get a recalled book from a few years back. An affordable comic book that has a little bit more of a story than just the good narrative in the pages, but one that is kind of uplifted in the community because it's controversial aspects. Let's also discuss one that, although didn't get recalled, it kind of falls in line with the Spider-Man Rain comic book because of nudity overshadowing the content and how good it actually was. And I have a feeling that had this not been as popular, Bueller, it would have been recalled. Yeah, I think so. This is the Batman Dam number one is what we're talking about. And there was nudity in this one as well. Just like in the Spider-Man book, we actually get to see Bruce Wayne's genitalia in this one also. And the interesting thing about this book, the preview copy of this book came out. It did not have it in there. But the retail copy, when it hit the shelves, had that in the book. It spread like wildfire. There was people buying this book in dozens and you know what before they could even get the recall out they were all gone they were literally all gone and they didn't bother doing a second print they just waited and went on to issue number two so the next book that we have to discuss is legendary i cannot tell you how many copies of league of extraordinary gentlemen issue number five i have flipped through just to see if the marvel douche ad was inside that's right have you had any luck finding it I've never found one. Rumor is, is that they were all destroyed prior to hitting the American shelves, but some DC packs are said to have them contained and a batch of shipment went overseas to the UK and has been confirmed to reach the public. These comics are out there, but what are we talking about? There is an ad for a hygiene product. It's, it's an ad that was placed in the back of the book. And then when the editor, Paul Levitz, found the ad, he was concerned of potential litigation, so he decided to put a recall notice and then re-release the comic book with the word Marvel changed to amazing. Right now we're talking about 
the douche thing, which is a little different. But there's actually books out there right now that they're taking action against, like Tommy Gun Wizards was one that they had to change the title because Tommy Gun is copyrighted. And the latest issue of that came out, it just said Wizards. So this is a normal practice, and I'm glad that they caught that. And he caught it before he could get sued by Marvel because nobody wants that to happen. This book, like you said, is hard to find, but I did find one on CGC that was sold. It was a 9.2, and it sold for over $260. And something that I find just hilarious is that Alan Moore was published four months after this comic book hit the newsstands, and he had inserted in the art of this top 10 publication a character reading a newspaper and the headline of the newspaper was miracle douche recall this is something that didn't just cause a stir among the publishers this caused a stir among the creators as well you gotta watch what you put in a comic book you also have to watch what you put in the microwave do you not you always have to watch what you put in the microwave because when you turn your back you never know what type of baby is going to crawl inside of a microwave because that happened in Elseworlds 80-page giant that got recalled. There was a babysitter. It was Clark Kent, if I'm not mistaken, the baby Clark Kent, right? Yep, that's right. And the baby actually crawled into the microwave and it got zapped, was recalled because apparently this might have actually took place in reality. Recalled for not just the baby in the microwave scene, but you know what? It also shows like the other problems of dealing with the super infant, like the infant getting tied to the ceiling fan and spinning around in circles, or even the infant getting a hold of some electric cables and just nomming on them. You know, it was controversial. They didn't want to risk anything, but something that I found funny is that this story would actually go on to be revered and get awards because of how good it was. Yeah, and you know what? I looked it up, Tom, and there's actually sold copies of this raw book that have been sold for $256. Can you tell us about Weird Trips number two? This is a comic book that came out in 1978. Recalled Comics has been happening since the 70s. This was recalled because of the cover. It has Ed Gain on the cover, who is a serial killer, and he is actually eating people on the cover. He's got like a stew. He's using their bones as a spoon. And it's disturbing. And like you said, this book came out in 1978. So quite a long time ago. I didn't know about this. When you pointed it out, I was surprised. But I could see definitely why it would be recalled. Written by Greg Depsey and drawn by Bill Stout. This $50 comic book is amazing that it ever hit the stands at all. Because of how grotesque the cover is. It was only a dollar back then. But you know what? It told the tale of what inspired the films of Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's crazy this thing was produced, but it definitely ruffled a lot of people's feathers. Normal books would cover this right away, but to see this in a comic book form and so close to that action that actually took place, it is surprising. So this next book that we have on the list, and honestly, this is one of my favorites, and this is going to be a great discussion. We have Swamp Thing number 11. This is a new 52 title, and the story behind this book is awesome. We have a bunch of quotes that we're going to mention, but honestly, you got to see this to believe this. That's right. We're talking about Marco Rudy. He was drawing Arcane. This is in Swamp Thing issue number 11, and Arcane is a tentacle type of creature, and he's emerging from beneath the swamp, and he's taking on Swamp Thing, and they're getting into a fight, and this story is so funny that we just got to read you some of these quotes here. So basically, Scott Snyder, the writer of this comic book, was sitting on panel at Heroes Con in Charlotte, 
And this is in 2012. He gets a text message from the editor at the time, Matt Idelson. And what does Matt tell Scott? He says he has to pulp the comics. He has to actually get rid of every one of them. Scott says, Matt, why? Why do we have to get rid of all of them? So this is actually the quote from Matt. So one of Arcane's tentacles looks a little dickish. He looks a little dickish and Scott's like, what? What are you talking about? So Scott says, yo, you need to send me these panels. So he's getting these panels. Can you imagine? Like he's on a panel and he's getting panels. It's Inception style. And he goes, okay, he, I kind of see it. He's going through the page and he's, and he's like, okay, I guess I can see they're kind of phallic shaped. But still, you got to pulp the issues, like all of them. And then Matt's like, no, 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 Scott, no, look at panel four. And, and Scott, he looked at panel four, and I think he had your response, Bueller. So my response is, uh, yeah, you need to get rid of these books. <laughs> so this is hilarious because Scott Snyder would go on to admit that this whole debacle was his fault from the get-go because he was reminded that he told Marco, the artist, specifically, this is the quote, for more tentacles, if possible, in panel one and panel four. So in a way... He had created the penis tentacle that had ruined my own book. Scott did it to himself. That's awesome. And Tom, you say that a lot better than I do. But if you look at panel number one, I could see where that would be kind of brushed by. Maybe every now and then you might be, oh, well, something's going on there. But panel four is clearly, how does that get past press? Uh, that's crazy. It's crazy, man. But it's comics like these that just make me chuckle. And, you know, it's recalled stories like this that give them just a another reason to enjoy them because it brings up conversation. It's a little bit of comic history. And holy smokes, like how, how funny are some of these things? Because the creators, they get involved in the conversation, and that's what makes them real special. I encourage the community to check out the controversial comics category section on Key Collector. There are a bunch of comic books books that are controversial for the reasons why we discussed, but a plethora of other ones. And you got to know them because these are actually available on the hunt because a lot of these, there's little minute details that make them controversial. And if you know what they are, you know what to look for when you are presented the opportunity to get them possibly on the cheap. That's right. And I always use the key collector app. It's got the section for these books right there. And it tells you what to look for because a lot of these recalled books, they were replaced with other books. Now you know exactly what to look for if you have the Key Collector app. That's right. Use code TOM101 to unlock a free week subscription to unlock the full service of the app. I'm confident you're going to find one comic book that's going to end up paying for the service in its entirety. Hey, Tom, I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me back on the show. It was a pleasure, my friend. You know, if you're not familiar with me, like I said, I'm Bueller from Comics with Bueller. You can find me on YouTube. You can find me in the description down below. And you can also find me as a featured channel on Comic-Con's homepage as well. That's right. You're actually the first YouTube channel I featured on the main YouTube homepage. And I really appreciate you, Bueller, our friendship and the comic book community. We're going to continue this conversation with some fun stories about a, a very embarrassing Chris Claremont interview that we did here on our audio platforms. I hope you join us. Don't forget to comment down below. Let us know what you thought about this video and it'll enter you to win one of two copies of Shows End, the Comic Tom exclusive that we're going to be announcing on next week's podcast. Remind you, we're going to be continuing this conversation on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And we will see you next week. Thanks, comic fam. As always. Geek Responsibly. 
Enough said. Beulah, Beulah, Beulah. Thank you so much, Comic Fan, for joining us. It's the after show. And I just want to say thank you to all of you who have come to join us today on the audio platform of your choice. Because we're here in your head right now in your headphones, likely. And I'm here with Bueller, a good friend of mine, someone I've known for a long time. And I want to chat about that. We're going to talk about some stories. Bueller, how you feel? I feel good, man. I'm excited to be here. Talk about some personal stories. Get a little bit more deep into some of the things that we've experienced together, which is very interesting. And I know everyone's going to enjoy them. Let's start off by explaining how we met, because I think it's important. It, part of the reason we have stayed together as friends over this last year and a half you started your youtube channel like the same month as i did we actually started youtube channels two days apart and i think your channel is two days older than mine the great thing is we're both in the pacific northwest we're literally right down the freeway from each other that's right and we met at emerald city and what's funny is i was only releasing content for a little over a month and a half when I put out my first videos and I went to attend Emerald city and my mother was there cause my family likes to go to comic book conventions. And you know, it was a funny thing cause it's like, you know, I started the venture of making comic book content, but you know, I'm talking like I had a couple hundred subscribers at this point. There was like nobody there. And I thought, you know, maybe there'd be someone that would recognize me from the comic book community. You never know, but I'm standing there with my mom and the very first person to ever recognize me is Bueller. And for those of you who don't know, Bueller, you are quite tall. How tall are you? I'm about six foot five. I'm a, I'm a big guy, but you know, it was pretty funny because here's the thing. Like I said, we both started around the same time and I was brand new to the YouTube scene, just like yourself. And I wanted to know if there was any other YouTubers in my area. So I used that search feature on YouTube to where you could do it by location. And that's how I found your channel, Comic Con 101. Oh, no kidding. And that's how I didn't I even know that. who you were had no idea that's hilarious yeah that's exactly how I, I saw you and the funny thing is i wasn't even supposed to go to emerald city comic-con a friend of mine had an extra pass he didn't want to go alone so we went up there on a sunday and as i'm standing there i'm like you know what i'm only going to probably know one person if i look and it might be that comic tom 101 guy i'm sitting there and all of a sudden i turn around and here you are and your mother and you're at the elevator and i was out of breath I literally just walked up like a, like a whole block from just getting something to eat. And there you were. And sure enough, I go, Comic Tom, Comic Tom 101. There is a aspect of what we do that is dependent on consistency, you know, putting out videos regularly, serving the community and building the community. And I saw you doing that early on. So I thought, oh my goodness, this is someone who's doing it. And you indirectly, but directly, encouraged me to make more content so i really value your friendship our friendship and value as a person in bueller and the community i know values what you do because holy smokes your community is strong it is a strong community we share a lot of the same community and that's the great thing that we do and you know you and i have supported each other from the very beginning you can go back and look at our videos from the first couple of months and you are saying, go watch Comics with Bueller. And I am saying, go watch Comic Tom 101. And we literally have less than maybe 500 subscribers. We have supported each other from day one. And it keeps on going. I've been on your show multiple times. You've been on my show multiple times. And we just love talking comic books, man. That's what we're here for. That's right. And as we went on this YouTube path, you know, and trying to just grow something, you know, between both of our channels, 
we've also come across some hurdles, you know, some hard times, you know, dealing with some difficult situations. And you've always been someone I've been able to reach out to and bounce ideas back whenever we're struggling, whenever we are finding ourselves, you know, with a lack of inspiration, because sometimes, you know, the brain just doesn't go there and you need to bounce ideas back off with your, your, your buddy and just chat comics openly. You've always been there for me to do that. So I appreciate you, you know, and what you do on, in the community here. And I think we got to tell the community right now about the first time we hosted a panel together. This is fairly recent. This happened within the last seven months. And it took place in Puyallup, Washington with Bueller and myself. And uh, let's get into it because the uh, I'm going to Quentin Tarantino it. But the end of this story is Bueller and I looking like absolute freaking fools on a stage with Chris Claremont, one of the legends and one of our, you know, the, the idols of the, of the hobby, you know, or one of our, one of the people we look up to most in this, in this community. And, and which is, is embarrassing. Let's just get into it. What happened? It, it, it was kind of embarrassing, but like you said, uh, it's a teachable moment for both of us. And I think we kind of, now looking back at it, it really has helped us. So I like the experience that we have, but let me give you a little bit of a backstory here. So it was at the Washington State Summer Con, like you said, in Puyallup, Washington. Um, I was actually invited to cover the con to go and film some stuff. I had talked to the promoter and everything, but I didn't exactly know what was going to go on. He just said, please show up. You know, I have passes for you at the door. And I found out at the very last minute, it was like the night before the con because he never got back to me. I called you that night because we had kind of talked about a little bit, just meeting up there and hanging out. I called you that night and I said, Tom, I got a pass for you. Please come down. It's at the door. You can get in for free. And Tom likes to go to Comic-Cons for free. So you, you, you took me up on that offer, right? <laughs> That's right. You know what? That was funny. I wasn't planning on going. And then you tell me, yo, I got a press badge. I got a press pass. And I got an extra one because the person I was going to go with can't go. Yep. It's got your name on it. And then I thought, okay. I have no reason not to go. Every time I go to conventions, I find myself in front of new opportunities, and that's the the FOMO creeping in. It's it's FOMO that is partially from just comic books in general, from doing comic book, the hustle. You know, you, oh, there's long boxes that could be looked at. Okay, you know, there's there's a there's a FOMO there, fear of missing out. But in this case, there's a FOMO for the creative side. I thought, yep. oh, there's artists and there's writers there, and Bueller has a ticket for me to talk to them to make it easier so i spent literally from i think you called me at 11 o'clock at night because yeah. you had found out super late and i that means i had to leave at like seven in the morning to get there by opening and i stayed up from midnight till three four in the morning pretty much four in the morning i remember it was like almost daytime out and i got barely any sleep because i was researching the artists and writers that i wanted to talk to and try to get content prepared for i wanted to make some videos that I could be proud of. So out of that convention, I ended up interviewing Ron Wilson, you know, the the artist who drew so much of the Bronze Age. He drew the thing. He drew so many awesome, awesome comic books. And also I interviewed Randy Emberlin and both of those were planned. Very excited that I was able to accomplish both of those. But upon arriving at the convention, <laughs> I walk up and I find Bueller and Bueller oh, runs up to God. me dude, you're so excited. You're like, Tom, I just found out. I just got here. I just found out that I was asked and, and, and apparently I have an opportunity to interview Chris Claremont and I'm hoping you can do it with me. Yep. And Bueller, you were so pumped. And I'm like, dude, we just got to, 
I want to talk to the person who said you can do it because I, I don't want them to be surprised that there's another YouTuber doing it. And I wanted to do this right. And then we were both in a huge surprise because <laughs> you had told me that you thought you were going to get private time with Chris Claremont in a room. And I'm like, yeah. Oh my goodness, that would be gold. We can talk about whatever. He'll, we'll just film the whole thing. We'll clip it up and we're going to freaking talk to Chris Claremont. But what did we find out? <laughs> Something totally different, <laughs> but it, here's the thing. So, like I said, I went there not knowing what exactly they wanted me to do. And, uh, when I got there, the showrunner came up to me and said, he recognized me. I didn't know who he was. Obviously, since we're on YouTube, our faces are out there. He came up to me and said, hey, I've got a couple guests here. He goes, are you a fan of Chris Claremont? And I said, yeah, I'm a huge fan of Chris Claremont. He goes, great. I have some time set up for you for you to talk with Chris Claremont. I was extremely happy. He also said the same thing about Scott Williams and Alex Sinclair, all the uh, artists. Batman Hush, yeah? Yeah, Batman Hush. He said the same thing about them, and apparently I have some time with them as well. And you're so thinking I'm like in private, though. Yeah, in private. That's my initial thing. I thought it was going to be in private. So I'm pretty excited because I am a huge Chris Claremont fan. Now, I will be totally honest. Alex Sinclair and Scott Williams, I'm not up to date on a lot of their stuff. But I need to figure out what to say to these gentlemen as well. Then you show up a little bit later. And then I go to you and I say, Tom, here's what's going on. I got this thing for Chris Claremont. You jumped at the chance for Chris Claremont, but you did not say anything about Alex Sinclair or Scott Williams, now did you? Well, as soon as you said Chris Claremont, I thought, <laughs> oh, we have our work cut out. And I knew that that would be more than like, that's the most important interview. And I knew how much time we had. We only had a few hours. So I'm like, oh, if we're going to get a private yep. interview with Chris Claremont, I'm going to focus on just that. That was my thought. We take this information to the person who's hosting the event. And what did they say? We were caught off guard because I went and talked to that guy. and introduced you to Steve. Steve is the showrunner. And we come to find out that we're not doing an interview. This is not a sit down interview. They want us to host the panels for a complete full audience of people. I've never done that before. Have you? No. Do you remember what I, what I said? <laughs> I remember a few things you said, Tom, but why don't you refresh me? I think my initial reaction was, oh, wait. You want us to interview him in front of the whole convention? Oh, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> I was immediate. was like, Bueller, I think you're on your own, dude. And Bueller, dude, you looked like just a deer in headlights. I will never forget that because you realized that you were already, you already committed. Yeah. He, he found his panel host. Yeah. You were doing it. Me, on the other hand, I had an out. But fortunately, you pushed me because you're a good friend. And you're like, dude, we can do this. We can do this. We're going to do it. And we agreed. We had under four hours to prepare for all of these interviews that were going to take place. You were doing one prior to the Chris Claremont interview. So you had a whole hour less than I did. And I had two other people that I was doing interviews with as well. And we had to figure out what we were going to talk about with Chris in front of the entire auditorium. He was the headlining. I mean, really one of the main headliners of the show. Yes. Yeah, he was definitely a headliner. I mean, there was I mean, there were some great guests there, Tom. I mean, Jim Lee the was there. That, that you mentioned, and like uh, we had Jim Shooter. That's right, Jim Shooter was there. Uh, Jay Lee was there. Sure was. Uh, um, a couple other guys, I'm forgetting. Steranko was there. Steranko sure as hell was there. He's always in Puyallup. And this is where things get interesting because Bueller and I, we've both 
have a process for when we interview guests. We know the struggles and we've you know, had to learn from our mistakes in the past. And in this case, we knew that Chris Claremont isn't the easiest to interview. So <laughs> we went into it with so many ideas of possible segments we can try to get recorded because we went into this with the goal of getting the community content. We could be in front of people all day long, an auditorium of people. I think there was like 70 plus people in the, in the audience here, all watching us. And we'll get into what happened on stage here in a second, but it was, <laughs> the goal was how do we make any type of content that's going to be entertaining to the community? And let's go into it with as many different opportunities to get Chris to deliver. And that's what we wanted to, to do. We wanted to set him up with success. So I thought, Hey, we put together a fantastic list of things to talk about on stage. And we were there on stage. We were there early. Okay. So let me paint this picture for the community here. I'm there with Slav, the the editor, right? He's filming this from the, you know, from the audience. We have cameras set up. We have a digital recorder on Chris, you know, like or rather where he's gonna be sitting. It's uh three seats that we've, you know, positioned so that we can be on both sides of Chris. And Bueller and I are like, all right, we're here. We're 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 here fifteen minutes early. This is exciting and, and we're stressed and we're excited and we're nervous and we're sitting on stage and we're watching this auditorium start to fill and it, and it keeps filling and it keeps filling. And I'm thinking, oh, I mean, I can't wait to meet Chris Claremont. Hopefully I get at least a couple minutes beforehand so we can, you know, tell him what we are going to talk about, see if there's anything he doesn't want to talk about. You know, I want to talk to him about, talk to him about the new Dark Phoenix movie that's coming out. I want to talk to him about his thoughts on Cyclops. Like, let's, let's do this. I have a freaking list. And the auditorium fills and his, in <laughs> the time that he's supposed to be there, which was 15 minutes prior starts clicking, starts going. And then realize as we are approaching this marker that Chris is nowhere to be found. And then all of a sudden we have an entire auditorium looking at Bueller and I and only Bueller and I, <laughs> and that's you what, what we dealt with for about 25 minutes yeah I, I gotta tell you Tom I think that was probably our shining moment right there I mean you take away what, when he came in and he got up on stage but our shining moment is like when me and you are on stage and we recognize the fact that our guest is not here we need to talk with these fans and we did that and I enjoyed that that was probably one of the best things about that con yeah, we chatted about Steranko. We, we chatted about the different people that were there that the audience may not know we asked if they if they knew what Mark Jeweler variants were because I was debuting my Mark Jeweler variant shirt <laughs> and people didn't know. So I had an opportunity to talk about collectible comics with the audience and, and to be a little bit silly with them and, and to find out if anyone here had a good experience with creators. And, you know, I had to step out of my comfort zone. Bueller, you did too. But we had to keep that room happy. I really enjoyed that. I, I sit back. And we both kind of stepped up. You know, I, I looked at you and I said, Tom, we got to do something because he's not here. We're, we're not going to have the prep time because as soon as he walks in, we got to start doing this because it's 15 minutes later than it should be. And there's other things that are coming on after him that's going to get pushed back because he's running late. Yeah, we had the Mall Rats cast that was starting to fill up the auditorium as well throughout the entire segment because they were up next. And... Oh my goodness. We were there early, <laughs> you know, we were there more than 15 minutes early. Oh, and yeah. he didn't arrive 
20, he arrived like 25 minutes after he was supposed to. So that means that we were on stage for over a half hour in front of a growing group of people in the auditorium waiting to see Chris. And we were just having to entertain him. But you know what? Oh, what is this? Oh my goodness. There he is. The man of the hour. Oh, he's, he's coming to save us. He's coming to, to actually perform. Save us? Coming to save us? Well, you know what? You know, the, the community, <laughs> although we were, I think we held our own. I don't think that they were there to talk about us. They didn't know who we were. You know, yeah. they didn't care about my business card telling them to check out my comic book channel. So we look over <laughs> and Chris comes in. He comes in late, but he comes in and I'm happy. I'm happy. And then he sits down. And then I look and I'm like, what is in his hand, Bueller? What is he doing? He's eating his cookies. I mean, that's all he cares about is his cookies and his Pepsi. He's got his cookies and his Pepsi and he's eating them on stage. And, and he's just like, oh, I'm here. No big deal. And he he wasn't going to stop eating them. It was like, yeah. hold on. You guys are going to wait for me. And I'm not kidding, Comic Fam. This guy ate his whole cookie on stage before <laughs> even starting the interview in the panel that he was already 20 plus minutes late for. He's a legend. He's going to do what he wants. But I'm just explaining the situation. Imagine how nervous and how just awkward this was for Bueller and I. It was a, a life-changing experience, to say the least. It, it was definitely life-changing. A, a great experience. I mean, even though it didn't turn out like we imagined it in our head, it was a great experience to have. And, you know, you talk about his cookie, there's crumbs all over the place. I mean, he did not care, you know. <laughs> we didn't need to be there. Bottom line, you and I didn't need to be there. He was going to say whatever he wanted to say. And actually, this took place right after that new Dark Phoenix movie came yep. out. And he was already salty about it. Yeah, he was really salty. And what's what I find interesting, like the the post of all this, like what what did what ended up happening? Like what did we release? What what was the result of this? I ended up saving two clips of the entire. You know, we ended up going for like fifty minutes. We went over yeah. the marker, and the reason why it's important to mention that we went over the marker is because by the end of the conversation, I was so determined to get good content that I wasn't going to let the host of the convention end it before I felt like I got everything out that I could get because I had comic books that I wanted him to talk about that I wanted to kind of just throw him off and just to have him be surprised to talk about that he hasn't talked about in years. And the hosts of the convention are in the back and they're telling me, <laughs> stop. They're looking at me like they're going to freaking, you know, get the sniper, stop this guy. Like it is no good. You gotta, you gotta stop talking. We have people here that need to, see the mall rats people Bueller. We pushed mall rats to another auditorium because we, <laughs> because we let Chris go so long and I kept asking him questions. That's right. I mean, and you know, some of the questions that you asked were great ones and some of the questions that we asked, he didn't care. I mean, we, it didn't matter what we said, but let's be honest that one question that you asked the Saturday night, Saturday night live one, he was interested in that. And that's what we got out of the interview. Yeah. We got a couple clips of him sharing just some insight on a couple comic books that I thought were really fascinating and that individuals in the community would like to hear a little bit of a backstory on because I kind of knew about him already. And I, I think it was just another kind of just general clip talking about Captain Marvel and some of his inspiration and, and, and such. But there was a good 30 plus minutes, Bueller. Yeah. That was just garbage. It was, there was, <laughs> Bueller, I played it for you. You saw the file. And you're and both of us looked at it and go, you know what? If we release this, we're doing the gentleman a disservice because it was yeah. just kind of like the ranting about nothing. Now, some of his rants, though, <laughs> come on, Tom. Oh my goodness, about we Hugh Jackman. Video, we just did a podcast <laughs> about censorship, and uh, 
some of his rants would fall in that category of might being censored because he was very excited to talk about the opportunity he had to see Hugh Jackman. Oh my goodness. You know what? I kept that. I managed to make that one in a video <laughs> because I, I had to use it, but that was an interesting one. Uh, the, the conversation went like this. Hey, Chris, please tell me about Cyclops because I feel like the movies just, just destroyed him as a character. He's a leader of the X-Men. I have so much respect for this character and your creation. Can you tell me about your thoughts on the character? And then he's like, well, let me tell you about Spider-Man. And then he just started <laughs> talking about something else. Like he, like, like as if I didn't say anything. Um, it was like that the entire time. And in response to the movies, yeah, one of his things he wanted to chat about was how he almost saw Hugh Jackman naked. And he, he talked about that in front of the entire audience. And I thought, I remember looking at you, Bueller, going like, what is going on, dude? Like, we could not have prepared for this. Now, he didn't, um, he wanted to see Hugh Jackman naked. He almost did, but he wanted to. That yeah, he was the made thing. sure to mention that he was looking, that he was yes. like, oh, I may be someone who gets to see him completely naked. Like he was, he was sharing that with the audience. Like, oh, we almost, we almost saw a full frontal. <laughs> <laughs> that happened, Bueller. Yes, it did happen. It was very surreal. I mean, how do you respond to that? I mean, that's not something I thought when it came up, pun intended, but uh, I thought it was pretty funny. But you know what? It did. It threw us off. But I think it was a good example of, you know what, if you team up with a friend to take on something that you, you feel like you may be daunting, things get a little easier, kind of rely on one another. And, you know, I think both of us delivered that day. We were able to get some content out of it. And you know what? Both of those videos did quite well. They're both living on the channel. They're both um, heavily consumed Chris Claremont interviews. And you know what? You look up interviews from a lot of these content creators, including Chris, and no one watches them. So the fact yeah. that we were able to bring attention to an interview uh, panel that was largely just not that great, I think we accomplished something. I think so, too. And you know what? If you get presented the opportunity to do something like this, you got to say yes, man. You can't just pass these things by. I would have done the same thing. Even if the outcome was exactly the same, I'd still say yes. And I'm looking forward to the next one. You know what? And I appreciate you saying that because it's those kind of uh, words and that type of eagerness and motivation that inspires me and pushes me to go forward in this as well, man. So I do appreciate you. Thanks for being on the show today. Comic fam, thank you for joining us. It was a, a fun podcast and I look forward to chatting with you next week. We done, baby. <laughs>